choosing what you're passionate about, that can be hard. So where do you put your attention? Where do you focus? And that's hard. But I think the trick is because it's hard, don't say I'm not going to do anything. Just pick something. I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Jenny Suss is on the show today. She is a producer extraordinaire. She's worked with some of the biggest names in music, including the fact that she's been the tour manager for The Roots, working directly with Quest Love. She really cut her teeth early on as a young female in this music industry. And then one day, a couple of years ago, she had an opportunity surface that was like no other. She had the chance to produce the Women's March on Washington in January 2017. And Ginny talks about this moment of realizing she had zero experience with activism, with producing marches, but she knew at this very moment that this was basically where her passion, purpose, and skill was colliding. And she talks through what that was like to put on a show of that magnitude and truly make history. What I love about the situation is that she said, I realized I knew nothing about this situation I was walking into and this opportunity, but I knew everything about producing. And that combined knowing a lot, but knowing also nothing in two different categories is what gave her fresh eyes to put on a show because it really was a show and and production like no other that became extremely memorable for many people. So when this all-in moment happened for her, which was a literal moment in time, she did not take a lot of time to consider this opportunity, she also started to transform what activism meant to her. And she's really taken the historic definition of activism and evolved it and innovated it to where she's using joy as a form of resistance. And we talk about that. So many of us are really trying to identify where that passion, purpose, and skill collide. And so often it just takes a small tweak to have it all come together. So rather than completely reinventing the wheel, it just so happens that actually this situation with Jenny, it was a slight shift, a, a change in trajectory that was not huge that allowed for her to find that alignment in a whole new way. 
we tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery, the original before-you-go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you-know-what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit Poopery.com and Why Not Now listeners get 20% off with code Why Not Now. That's all one word. And you can hear the story about Poopery in our interview with founder Susie Batiste. That's Why Not Now, episode 28. Poopery is also available at Target. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hop right in, in the spirit of why not now. Can you tell me about a time when you had a big decision to make and you asked yourself, why not now? Yes. Throughout my life, I can think of various different examples of when that has occurred. But the kind of most recent and most relevant to like my daily life today, there were sort of like two big moments that are connected. So first moment was when I decided to jump in and produce the Women's March. I was one of the original co-founders of the Women's March, and I produced the original March in Washington, D.C. on uh, January 21st, 2017. And that decision, I think, led me to a decision later on, which was to leave the businesses I had been working with for years and years and go out on my own independently and you know, start my own business. Wow. That's it. Yeah. Well, a lot of things baked into that answer that I'd love to dive into. How did this even come to be? I mean, what an epic moment in history that you were helping lead and define. How did those sequence of events even line up? How, how did that break down if we were to dissect it? So... Just to like give a little context, I would never have described myself as a quote-unquote activist in my past, but if you look at the trajectory of my life, I deeply studied race and gender studies in college. I was part of all sorts of groups in school leading the charge for various social justice issues. I was down at Occupy. I participated in various uh, protests before, but I was just like a participant who didn't feel super active. But I spent my career really working in the music industry, and what I did was build up two media companies from the ground up. One was called OK Player, and one was called OK Africa. And both of them were about centering voices that are often marginalized in mainstream media, specifically voices for musicians of color. And that had sort of been a deep part of my career. So I was aligned very progressively and like somewhat involved, but I was never, I would never consider myself an activist. And like many people, when the 2016 election went down, I was horrified and, and worried about our future. I was worried enough about it under Obama, who, you know, in all fairness, as good as if we've ever had it in terms of a president. And there were there were so many issues under Obama that I was, you know, fighting against or, or worried about, concerned about from immigration to criminal justice on down the line. The night I was watching the election results come in, I, I hopped around a bunch. I was actually at the uh, 
Javits Center for Hillary <laughs> early in the day. When things started looking not promising, I went to another uh, friend's house who was having sort of a gathering to watch. And by the end of the night, I ended up in uh, Toshi Regan's living room, just beyond upset. We were all, it was with a couple other friends and we were just horrified. And Toshi comes from, Toshi's a huge activist and comes from a legacy of activism. And, you know, throughout the night as the election results were coming in, her conversation was very much around community and what we need to be thinking about as a community in light of this election and the direction that everything's heading. Of course, I started thinking about that more deeply. And when, so I got a call from a friend who had been poking around online with this thing called the Women's March. And she had connected with a couple of the other women who had been talking about this exciting idea and decided that we should take the charge and, you know, make this a reality and asked me if I would would be interested in joining um, and participating in, in this event and helping to shape really what it was going to become. You know, I took about a split second and said, yes, of course, I'm all in. And, and quickly we realized this was going to consume our lives for the next 10 weeks or, how, you know, 12 weeks, however long we had from a few days after the election until the inauguration. And, um, you know, I was all in and I felt like that was a moment where I sort of took all these little steps in my life that had been angling me toward social justice. Um, I di I've done a lot of work with The Roots for years and years, from tour managing to producing shows. And I was definitely involved in lots of the events we would do that were supporting great non-for-profits or great organizations or cause-driven concerts. I had put on some of those myself. Uh, so I had done all these things, but I'd never said, yes, I'm an activist. And I felt like this was the moment where I said, I'm all in. Like, I'm going to get as involved as I need to be. And it doesn't matter that I don't know everything. You know, I feel like in my life, so many, I went to college, I have a career. I feel like it was always, you have to really like learn and practice and study what you're going to do before you jump in. Mm -hmm. And this was the kind of opposite. I just jumped in and said, I don't know a lot about organizing, but I'll learn and I'll learn fast. <laughs> and it's okay that I don't know everything. I'm going to bring the skills that I do have to the table and then I'm going to learn what I need to know along the way. And it was, you know, the most natural fit was for me to work on the music and the production of the actual um, event, the like main women's march that was that was broadcast live around the country in Washington, D.C. So I, I curated the stage. I sort of thought a lot about the artistic direction and, and sort of grounding the stage in various types of music with various types of women who are very engaged, engaged in in meaningful work. In one sense, I, you know, I knew how to do that. I knew how to build a show. I knew how to work with musicians and create a flow. And from working years and years with The Roots, who one of the things they're most known for is their jam sessions. Mm -hmm. And these are super eclectic nights where musicians from all walks of life and different backgrounds in music come together and play music together. And it, a lot of it is rooted in a history of improvisation and and you don't know what you're going to get, and it they may and and it's it ends up being like a beautiful and different journey each time, and I feel like with this uh, kind of event, we wanted to really be truly representative musically, in addition to thinking about people's identity and perspective and like what they'll be bringing to the stage. So I that history really helped me build build a show and understand how to 
put music into a sort of sequencing that flows even when the music is kind of disparate and unconnected. A couple of the things that you you said I think are so, <laughs> they, they just resonate so much with that moment where you said it was, you were all in, right? That all in moment, yet here you had just learned of the idea and you didn't have this background in activism or in the, the specific area but you knew what you knew. And I think that's so common for entrepreneurs as we were all entering into some of the unknown. And it just so happens that the culture of what you had done for years was kind of revolving around the unknown and improv with their roots. So it's probably schooling you along the way and prepping you, grooming you for this moment. But can you talk a little bit more about how much time you did or did not even think about the fact that this was a, an area that you hadn't really been involved with before. I very little. This was like a re- it was just such a sort of emotional moment of crisis and action. And it was like, what are you going to do? And who are you going to be in this moment? Are you going to sit back and like let other people make decisions about where we're going and where our future is headed? Or are you going to just jump in and do whatever you can? And it was kind of that sense of, more than anything, it was just a sense of, I want to be useful in helping transform the world and in helping, you know, helping fight back, helping fight back against what's happening. Um, how can I be most useful? So that to me, you know, as soon as I, I realized that we were going to have this march that was centered around this huge rally, to me, a rally was very much like a show. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I know how to produce a show. So mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to help somehow, you know, I don't know exactly how I'm going to fit in but my skills will be somewhat useful. And along the way, you know, I was working on partnerships. I was working on mobilization. So it was such a scramble. Those 10 weeks, everyone who was sort of 100% all in, we were just working 24 hours a day and filling the, we wore so many different hats. We were filling gaps wherever there was a gap that needed to be filled. If someone needed to get on a phone and talk to a partner and, you know, ease their sensibilities or, or try to bring them on board to mobilize their, their crowd, or whether it was, you know, I remember at some point jumping in to help make sure there was a bus so the Lower East Side Girls Club could get down, things like that. They're things that had nothing to do with music production. I was involved with uh, at times. And people who were involved with, you know, strictly with uh, partnerships were involved somewhat in the music. And so everyone overlapped because we were all just working together to try to get it done. It definitely wasn't easy. And there were moments of like tension and moments where it was really hard. But at the end of the day, I think what we did was, is a really important moment in history. Absolutely. And it's, what I heard you say is that, you know, you just wanted to be useful and that's where you were of service. All of a sudden you were in service to something. And on the show, we talk a lot about this concept that I happen to trip and fall into, which is where passion, purpose, and skill collide, bliss resides. Because for so long, the purpose was a deficit for me. And for you, it seems like this was a huge injection of purpose. Um, you have obviously the skill and the passion, and it doesn't mean that you didn't have that purpose before, but it sounds like at the moment it even just landed in your lap, it was like, this is it, here we go. So how do you feel, I mean, it happens, you, you put on this show, really, because that's what what it was in, and in so many locations, too, that ended up taking on you know, the vibe and the presence. 
but being at the helm and being at the heart and hub in DC, was there a um, a sense of responsibility to keep people mobilized after, or was there kind of a drop in that adrenaline, or what? What did you do after? First, I think it took a really long time for the significance of that that moment sink in to most of us. <laughs> but after that, I think we were all. At this point, because of the work we've done, we were all deeply connected to so many great organizations and and, uh, people doing incredible work. So I think we knew that we now were... Another thing that Toshi Regan said to me, it's, uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, this is a way of life. And I think that's one thing. After the Women's March was over, I said to myself, we can't do that again, at least not right now. Like, you know, losing hair and losing sleep and losing weight because we were working 24 hours a day nonstop to pull that off. But we need to figure out how to build it into our lifestyle in a healthy way so we can continue being engaged and active. And I think that, you know, when I really sat down and thought about it right after the march, I was like thinking about the definition of the word activist and how I had been an activist for much of my life. But I was like nervous sort of claim that identity or that word uh, because it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, a leader in the, in the, in the movement space. And one of the things that I feel like I've done since then is kind of take this message um, into the world, mostly centered around the intersection of, of creativity and the arts and social justice. But this message that like, you can be an activist, just, you just have to do something. You don't have to be the leader of a movement. You don't have to know everything. So after, and that sort of leads into what what a lot of us did after the march. So a bunch of the co-founders of the march and myself got together and we created a chorus called the Resistance Revival Chorus. Mm-hmm. And we sang protest music, mostly to save ourselves. We needed something that brought joy into our lives and that uplifted us. Um, it was this, it's about six months after the march, the summer of 2017. And everyone was really beaten down because we'd been going to protests. We'd been in the streets. We'd been writing to people and calling and having meetings. And um, it was just bad news every day in the press. And we were feeling, you know, a little bit deflated. And one of our one of the co-founders of the march, Sarah Sophie Flicker, said, we need to all get together and sing. Let's create a chorus where we sing protest music. And we were all thinking about this quote. Um, we worked on the march out of an office that was run by Harry Belafonte called The Gathering for Justice. And Harry Belafonte came and talked to us one day. And he said, one of his sort of like, quotes we all took away from that day was, when the movement is strong, the music is strong. And we all looked at each other. And we're like, the movement is strong. But we need a soundtrack to what's happening right now. And we had, there are moments, there definitely is message music in the world right now. You look at Kendrick Lamar and Childish Gambino and Janelle Monet. It's coming and more of it's coming. But um, so we built this, we built this chorus. We built this all women's chorus and we sing protest songs. And through that effort, We've been able to take our music into sort of non-traditional spaces at times and talk to people about what it means to be engaged, what it means to be an activist, and how that can be defined within the creative community. And how you've somewhat redefined it through the use of joy as a form of resistance. And um, yeah, that's 
extremely innovative. <laughs> Our mantra for the chorus is joy is a form of resistance. And I think about just reading people who have written a lot about authoritarianism. And I think about, you know, in, in, in there's sort of like a playbook for, <laughs> for how to become an authoritarian dictator. And one of the things that they quickly, those systems quickly try to diminish and take away from you is your ability to express yourself and express your own joy. And, you know, sort of the illusion that they have control over over your feelings in addition to everything else. And so reclaiming that and joy is an act of resistance. I'm responsible for my own joy and you can take a lot from me, but you can't you can't ever take that. And what I love about this, Jenny, is that you and your fellow leaders that were the heading this up and really birthed this, you weren't so focused on the rest of the world mobilizing and doing something and how you were going to make them do it. You actually went and did it for yourselves. And so that's, in a way, it's so much more sustainable because if, if you are a heartbeat of something and you've found a way to feed yourself first, that will help you with the bigger picture. And I, I've been reading about your chorus and then also watched the um, the really well done quick six, seven minute video from, I think, Red Bull, the Maven video, which I encourage everybody to go watch and, um, and just kind of absorb. But I think that's really a flip that might seem unexpected, but you took it upon yourselves to uh, fill your own cup first. And that's, I think, what we all need to do. Totally. And, but as we did that, a lot of the lessons we learned from the Women's March, I think, still really reside. So one of when we created the chorus was, it wasn't about centering any particular woman in the chorus. It wasn't about ownership. So what we did was we created a toolkit so women all over could create their own resistance revival choruses. And there have been about eight or nine that have sprung up. But, you know, our idea was that we want everyone who wants to sing in the spirit of joy as a form of resistance and to, and to create new message music and new protest music for this moment in time. We want to encourage them to do so. So, you know, we try to, like, encourage people to start their own groups, too, which has been kind of a beautiful thing that has come out of this. It's decentralized and democratized, too, because it's kind of a self-organized way of scaling this concept out. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you are digging this podcast, please subscribe rate and review on iTunes. It just takes a moment and it means a ton to us. Also, after recording more than 100 episodes, I've created a bit of a cheat sheet on the top five things I've learned from renegades and how they get from idea to action, from dreaming to doing. I will email you the downloadable PDF when you subscribe to my newsletter. Just head to amyjomartin.com and click on connect with me. I love the term message music, and I want to kind of use that as a bit of a transition uh, into some of your experience with The Roots and with Quest Love. I heard you tell a story about when you were first starting and um, you were a tour manager, you would show up at these venues on tour and people would say, where's the manager? And where's the tour manager? And and as a female who's younger, cutting your teeth in this world, you had to just learn how to navigate that. Can you talk a little bit about your journey? Because a lot of women who are listening are in those similar spots where they're maybe not taken as seriously. And 
I sense that you have some grit and you definitely have some fierce grace behind you. So anything you can share on that topic would be lovely. Sure. I mean, yeah, when I was first starting out, I would constantly get asked, where's the tour manager? And I'd sort of look around and then raise my hand and say, right here. You know, why are you sort of assuming? I don't know. They thought I was some little assistant to someone or something, you know, some sort of like insignificant part of the touring party. I think for a long time in in my life, not just at uh, not just tour managing the roots, but working on their their media companies and uh, in production. I think that I excused that a lot. I mean, I think I always kind of stood up for myself, but I think I also kind of excused it and assumed it was because I was young for a long time. And it's all, it was only about two years ago that I looked around and I was like, bitch, you're 40. This is not happening because you are young. If you're getting overlooked, if you're getting included in rooms you should be in in business, um, if your voice is not being heard, if you see other men taking credit for your ideas, this is not because you're young anymore. You can't chalk it off. You have to look around and see what, what other reasons <laughs> this might be happening. And I think that's when I really sort of opened my eyes to the sort of intense amount of, of sexism and misogyny within the music industry. Now, with that said, I don't think any of that was ever directly, you know, coming from Quest Love or, or, or the roots per se. There's just like, I've worked in media and with so many different media companies and so many different music managers and so many different artists and, and produced so many different kinds of shows. And I've seen it across the board. And like I said, I think for a while, I just kind of implicitly knew that I had to just have some chutzpah and just mm-hmm. show up and keep doing a good job and I would be recognized. And that did happen. That's true. But it wasn't until a lot later that I really took a look at the gender dynamics in my own industry. Coming from professional sports and entertainment prior to starting my own company about 10 years ago, I I realize now I think so much of this is an unconscious bias it's, or subconscious. Um, and, and that's something that I believe, you know, men understanding more and being a part of the solution will be a big part of our acceleration toward equality in every sense of the word. But it's it's interesting to hear kind of how you one day were like, wait, maybe it wasn't because I was young. <laughs> well, and, you know, I always think about this. I was like a poli-sci major, and I'm always thinking about these larger structures and systems that are in place that allow us and encourage us to act the way we do. Uh, social norms and social and things like this. And I think that, you know, when I step back and I look at the music industry, for example, I mean, you know, it is the victims completely need to be accountable, but it's also about looking at what structures and systems are in place that allow these people to become who they are with such ease. And I think that when we look at our country as a whole, you know, we have, there's sexism and misogyny and racism written into our very founding documents, mm-hmm. written into the Constitution, written into the police training manuals. It's it's so, language is really important. And, and I think that the systems that we have, systems even of cultural norms of what's acceptable and what's not and how we place things in certain boxes can be really damaging. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of history, isn't it? I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years. And as we approach the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment, 
how are we doing? You know, it's like, wow, 2020 is 100 years of women's right to vote. And um, it's fascinating to me to look back and say, wow, I are we going in the right direction? And how can we accelerate? Like, what are some of these triggers and levers we could pull? I know you've spent some time with Gloria Steinem, <laughs> and you even introduced her, didn't you, at the Women's March? I did, I did. Oh. I had the great privilege and honor of being able to introduce her at the at the Women's March. That oh. was an amazing moment. Incredible. Any thoughts on that, on how we do pull some levers to accelerate? You know, I just think that like dismantling these systems of misogyny and sexism, they're deeply woven in Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a long process. So I think the idea that we both have moved forward and have areas that we're like far behind on since the 19th Amendment seems right. Seems like that's how history happens, right? Um, So there's, you know, I think that the idea that we have to tackle these things on all fronts. So we need to encourage the people working on really like small, slow systemic stain change mm-hmm. and working on the people who are like very actively and fiery, very actively and sort of with a fiery spirit involved in pushing things to happen right now, immediately. I think when we see the the women's wave in Congress right now, that's super exciting. When you see young young people getting into positions of power who uh, don't have the same hangups as, and, and, and his same history as some of the, the older people in place, when you see young people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. you know, standing up for herself at every turn, kind of defying the misogynistic idea that she's just a young girl who doesn't know enough, you know? Um, I think that's really empowering. And I think if we have more models and more leaders in all sorts of spaces, that's easy way to fast track as offer, you know, inviting women into spaces of leadership and power where they haven't traditionally been. And I think in the music industry, I see that across the board, you know, the, the first at the Grammys this year, it was the first time ever a woman has won for master engineering. And when you look in, in studios, you know, in production spaces, women producers, women engineers, it's its just a teeny tiny percentage. There's nothing genetic that predetermines that, oh, men, men are more able to be engineers. Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. It's because we've created a space that's unsafe for women, unhealthy, um, that's discouraged instead of, you know, opening it up and inviting women in. That brings up a, uh, a thought. I really appreciate that when you were creating and producing the Women's March, you put women at every stage and place in the event in terms of even behind the scenes and learning that you made sure that the soundboard was, you know, operator was a female and yeah, just, it was fully led and run by women. I think that's, it's really important. And I think it's good for people to know that and hear that, that, you know, this was machine. I mean, and I had to fight for that a bit because it wasn't the easiest, you know, we were trying to get this done quickly and put Mm -hmm. things in place that we knew would work. And, um, you know, I had to, I had to go out and do some digging and do Mm -hmm. some research to find a great front of house woman engineer who happened to be free on that day. When, when these women are like 5%, 10% of all the front of house sound mixers, you know, to find someone who's available, it's not as easy. We had a front of house monitors engineer. We had front of house stage manager. Um, everywhere, everywhere I could insert a woman into a position of like leadership, into tech, uh, into making, you know, 
making the show run, I did. Thank you for doing that. I'm glad that that's being vocalized a bit too, because a lot of people probably didn't realize. Um, so you you clearly have landed in this spot where it's just come together. It's like your skills, everything you've done to get to this point, your passion, your purpose, it's all intersecting. For people who are listening and they're looking for that and Maybe they're just even starting with their passion. They're not quite sure what they're passionate about to even raise their voice. What advice might you give them? That's hard. That's a hard one. I, well, I have two things. The first is, and I'll use these my singers as, as an example. When we started the chorus, I put the word out. I know so many musicians in, in New York, in Brooklyn, because I've been doing this for like 15 years. Um, and I just sent an email out to all the women I know who sing, who play music and said, do you want to come sing with us and and be in this chorus? We don't know what it's going to turn into, but let's just have, you know, let's just meet and sing. And I thought we'd get like five people, you know, throughout, um, I think throughout, if you, if you look at the history of like my personal production in the nonprofit space, for example, it's always like pulling teeth to get artists to do things for free. And, and rightfully so, you know, they everyone's always asking them to to work for free. And it's it's sort of one way in which we don't respect the arts the way we do other professions. But these nonprofits don't have a lot of money, so they're asking people to do things for free. So anyway, I thought, okay, maybe I'll get like five people who are down to do this. We have no budget. We have no money. And we had over 30 people spilling out of my friend Sarah's living room. And what I heard over and over again from these women, from these musicians, were I've been wanting to get involved and I just didn't know how. Like, thank you for opening up a space for me to make room to be involved. And I think that that's like something that's really resonating with people, especially over the last two years. I feel like over the last two years, there are more resources than ever before for how to get involved in something. And and choosing what you're passionate about, that can be hard. You know, I feel like I'm passionate about all humanitarian issues. Mm-hmm. And that, so where do you put your attention? Do you Is it in criminal justice reform? Is it in equal pay? Is it in immigration? Where do you focus? And that's hard. But I think the trick is because it's hard, don't say I'm not going to do anything. Just pick something. And it can be small. And, you know, if you look at the resources from indivisible to swing left, you know, the internet has, so, there's so much at our hands of small things we can do to get engaged and and remain engaged with the body politic today and, and influence and shape the future that I think it's just a matter of taking a, taking a little bit of initiative and saying, you know, looking through the indivisible site, go to, go to a meeting, go to a city council meeting, go to a school board meeting, just sort of getting involved in your community, donate some time. And you don't have to be doing everything. You can pick one thing. Mm-hmm. That is such great advice. Like go to a city council meeting, go to a school board meeting, how you found your tribe by just reaching out to some like-minded, like-hearted people. You were able to start this, this chorus and uncover the fact that, yeah, a lot of people were in a similar spot. These musicians who like, you know, wanted to participate in this moment, but didn't know and, oh, I've never like written political music before, but they took a chance and they came to this, you know, little sing-along meeting and now they're part of the chorus and now they're showing up and singing at protests in the streets, going to city hall, standing up for families belong together, you know, we've done so many protests and these are people who hadn't protested before, who now uh, feel comfortable in that space and active. So sometimes it's a matter of just like dipping your toe into an area where you're not 100% comfortable. Love it. I call it dating passions, potential passions, right? Like you just sample them out and see. Um, totally. 
What's one lesson that you find yourself learning over and over? One lesson I find myself learning over and over that I still haven't learned, maybe. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Is this idea that, um, so I feel like one thing I always think is, I wish I had that one skill. Like I wish I was that violin player that had that skill from when I was like three years old and I just focused and studied my whole life. And now I was a world-renowned violin player. That's just like one example of like someone who actually has a skill. A lot of times I look around and I say, I don't have any skills. My skills are just like persistence, (laughs) persistence. And like, you know, I'm, uh, it's because I feel like I've lived this life that's a jack of many trades, you know, um, production is like being persistent, being organized, doing all these things, but you know, okay, maybe I have a good ear. That's like a talent that I have. So I, you know, I can recognize music, but I don't, um, I don't feel like I'm an expert in any one thing. And so, but a lesson that I keep trying to learn is that that's okay. And I can live with not being an expert at anything. Like I'm, you know, there's no, there's not one field of study that I've committed my whole life to and I'm an expert at. And I know that like this one thing, I'm, I'm sort of like, I have it down. I feel like I kind of don't have anything down, but I know enough about a lot of different things that I can navigate all sorts of spaces. And, and that's fun. I think you have humility down because you, <laughs> you can own that because you were literally like pretty much hand selected to be such a big part of a big, you know, unknown that, that came to be in history that you do have uh, such expertise in. But I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I think too, it's, um, it's sometimes perspective is hard when we're in the middle of our own our own worlds. Um, but yeah, no, that's really interesting. So any all-time favorite books that you are just coming to mind? So many. Um, so I'm a voracious consumer of fiction. So I don't even know where to begin with favorite books. Um, there's books I've read most recently, but when I go back through time in my mind, there are so many books that have changed my life that I, I it's really hard to know where to begin. Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Nabokov. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, I've read, you know, a couple really amazing books recently, A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James, which is fantastic. Um, I'm a huge fan of um, George, uh, George Saunders. Uh, 12th of December, 10th of December, his short storybook just was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I don't know where to begin. (laughs) No, that's a good lineup for sure. And what keeps you up at night? My to-do list. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) My to-do list and worrying about our reproductive rights being snatched away from us, worrying about um, all of the people at the caravan at the border and their future and their lives. You know, there's so many things that keep me up at night that um, I think that all of us are kind of, uh, we are suffering from fatigue from being up at night for the last nonstop, just worrying about everything. And um, very important question here, pirates or ninjas, who is tougher and why? Mm. Pirates or ninjas? Well, they both have good outfits, which I appreciate. <laughs> They're both sneaky. I like to say, I think ninjas are tougher because I think they're more organized, which is a skill that I'm always trying to prove. Mm. I think, pir- I think of pirates, and I think they're a little sloppy. They're more carefree. 
you know, they're out on the ocean, they're having a couple drinks. Ninjas are like plotting and planning and being stealth and then executing their plan. <laughs> Fair enough. I like the backup there. That's good. And final question, what advice would you give to your younger self? Hmm. That's a good question. Mentors have been really important in my life. So I would tell my younger self to always be looking out for amazing people who are older than you, who have more experience uh, in areas that you're interested in and learn lessons from them. I think that's like a good lesson to tell my younger self. And you have a tattoo on your middle finger, right? Didn't that come from... Yeah, one of my biggest mentors is a man named Rich Nichols, who was the Roots manager, um, who passed away four years ago. And he just taught me everything I know about production and every, sort of every angle of the music industry possible, but also a lot of great life lessons too. When I, you know, when I first met him, our first conversation was an argument, like a, a feminist critique of Gloria Steinem. Like we were talking about Gloria Steinem's books <laughs> and as history evolved, you know, we were great debaters and we loved talking about ideas and we talked about feminism and we talked about music. He was a big jazz, you know, free jazz lover. And I grew up listening to a lot of jazz, but he was just, he had perspective. He was a big thinker. It, we talk a lot about mentorship on the show and um, I'm so glad that you brought that full circle of where you got your guidance, you know, and someone that taught you everything you know, that's it's incredible. And to have that two-way street of clearly he was getting something from it because he wouldn't have continued and done it for so long if he wasn't. So equal value exchange, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much. And where can people follow along your journey and stay in touch? So for me personally, they can just follow me at Ginny Sus, uh, mostly on Instagram, and for the chorus, they can follow the Resistance Revival Chorus on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again, not only for your time today, but also just what you've been doing in general and continue to do. And we look forward to following your journey. Thank you so much. everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to why not now at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? <laughs>